Well, for the next two Sundays, we are going to be in the shortest book of the Old Testament, a little tiny book called Obadiah. Um, Obadiah is in a group of books called the Minor Prophets. And this group of Minor Prophets is located next to a group of books called the Major Prophets. Now, I know that in these here parts, we can't hear the words major and minor without adding the word league to the end of them. And that adds a whole lot of ideas to our head. Like, major league is like top-tier performers. Minor league, they're good, but they're not major league material, right? Like, major league is better than minor league. And, and when we come to the major and minor prophets, that's not really the idea. Um, the idea is that the major prophets did the majority of writing for the prophetic books, and the minor prophets did the minority of writing of prophetic works. And Obadiah is the minorest prophet in our Old Testament. He wrote the tiniest book, only 21 verses in our English translations. In fact, if you start looking for it now, you might actually find it in your Bible by the end of the sermon this morning. That's how hard it is to find. It's so small and tiny. And I don't know why, I don't know why, but some of you, you won't understand, you won't know the song, but some of you will. Um, you guys know, how many of you know the song uh, Elvira by, I think it's the Oak Ridge Boys, right? Yeah. For weeks, I'm like, Obadiah, um, papa, um, papa. I don't know. Some of you, you don't know that. That's fine. I didn't even know it that well. I finally had to listen to it to try to get it out of my head. And I know it's not Obadiah, but it is. That's what my brain has been doing with this whole uh, book since the beginning. So um, I will never look at that song the same way again. Now, Obadiah is a unique book, and you might think, why did I pick it of all the prophetic books? And, you know, I don't know. I, it's one I have a, I really like because it's unique. Um, there's only a few of all the prophetic books that are not written to the nation of Israel. I mean, if you know anything about the Old Testament, this nation of Israel, they're kind of the spotlight. Like, they get all the attention. God speaks to them, through them, works in them. Everything seems to be all about Israel, but Obadiah and a few other places, we get a glimpse to say that God spoke to people other than the nation of Israel. God spoke to other people that maybe even, I don't know, I'm kind of guessing here, but maybe God spoke way more in the world than we know. Maybe all we have of God speaking to Israel is just that one tiny little slice of God's work in all of history. Because we do know, though, that God spoke to other nations besides Israel. Israel. And the nation that God spoke to in Obadiah is a nation called Edom. Edom. And in fact, poor Obadiah, he's really not even important, okay? All, Obadiah is just the guy that God spoke this stuff through. And the only time you find his name is in the first verse. It says, you know, the prophet Obadiah, there. And it moves on to talking to this nation of Edom. Now, the story of Edom in Israel they are related. There's, it's kind of the story of two brothers. Um, how many of you have you heard of Jacob and Esau? Okay, um, Jacob and Esau, if you don't know, um, were brothers. They were twins. Esau was hairy and strong and tough. And uh, Jacob was just sneaky and he was weaker. But he kind of uh, didn't uh, always treat his brother well. He took advantage of his brother. And for a large part of their time together, they did what brothers did and they fought and they didn't get along. And then later in life, they kind of reconciled. But Jacob, God had a relationship with Jacob and a promise for Jacob. And God changed Jacob's name. You know how God likes to change people's names when he gives them a mission and a job to do? God changed Jacob's name to Israel. 
And so the nation of Israel are the descendants of this man that God named Israel. And so the descendants of Jacob go on to become this huge, huge nation that we know and love as Israel. But Esau, his descendants also went on to grow and multiply and have their own country, and that country is Edom. And so Edom and Israel are brother nations. They share an ancient family connection. All right? And then at one point in Israel's history, Israel gets absolutely flattened by a much bigger, stronger nation called Babylon. And what do brothers do when one brother gets in a pinch, right? What are brothers supposed to do? Help each other, right? Now, let me say this. I got a brother. I, me and my brother, we spent the majority of our time together beating each other up and annoying one another, right? But when, when, the, when it gets serious, right, brothers are there for each other. Yeah, you fight. Yeah, you bicker. Yeah, you, you know, pe- push each other's buttons. But when things are, you know, when it really comes down to it, when everything's on the line, brothers stick up for one another. Well, when Babylon comes in to plow through Israel, Edom, rather than help their brother nation, they actually help everybody else destroy Israel. And God has a lot to say to Edom because of that. So if you want to go ahead, try to grab a Bible. If you brought your own Bible, I, I, I'm suggesting you go to the contents to try to find that one page that Obadiah is on. If you end up using the Black Pew Bibles that are there with you, I'll give you help. It's on page 772. I did the hard work for you. Look that one up. Or the verses will just be on the screen. Okay? It's a real small book. Okay? So what we're going to see is what God has to say to a nation that betrays its brother? What does God have to say to these people that totally, totally turn their backs on these, this ancient family line? So we'll start in Obadiah, uh, verse 2. Um, we're, you're probably used to um, books having a chapter and a verse. You know, We'll say you know, Luke 3, verse whatever. Well, Obadiah is so small, it doesn't even get chapters. So we're just in Obadiah, verse 2. And God tells them, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You guys think you're big and bad. You think you're so tough. I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your hearts has deceived you, and you you live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? A.K.A., who's going to touch me? Nobody can touch me. I'm safe. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though you nest in it, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now that should be scary. Like that should be something. When God says, I'm going to bring you down. That's a little bit of a terrifying thing. And so before God even gets to really can, like telling them all that he's going to do to them, there's a little bit of, of it here. God diagnoses their real problem. He diagnoses the sin that led them to betray their brother nation, and it's this, pride. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The chief pride of Edom, or chief sin of, of Edom, was, was pride. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, is this idea of pride. And let me just say, right out of the gate, for those of you that are in this room listening, and if you end up watching this later online, if you're hearing my voice, go ahead and just assume that this message is for you. Because anytime anybody talks about pride, your first thought is, oh man, I wish my husband was here today to hear this. 
Or, oh, I'm glad my kids came to church today. Or, if only my boss. Maybe I'll just, like, burn this on a, on a CD and, like, leave it in his, you know, slide it into the door of his office so that hopefully he'll listen to this. Because my boss is the guy that really needs to hear this. Yes, you can think of a lot of people in your life that are struggling with pride and need to be more humble. But let's push all that aside for the next half hour or so and admit to the fact that maybe you need to hear this for you. And maybe I need to hear this for me. Because the thing about pride is it is the sneakiest of all the sins. Uh, I tell people it's the ninja sin. Like it gets into your life, you don't even know it's there, and before you, you know it, it's destroyed you. And so we've got to look for it. We've got to own it and admit that it might be in our life. Because the most dangerous part about pride is that the more prideful you are, the less likely you are to see it. And so if you are sitting here thinking, well, this, I don't know if this is really for me. You really, really, really need to stop that line of thinking and think, maybe I am prideful. Maybe I do need to be more humble because the more prideful you are, the less likely you are to see the pride in your life. Now, Edom had a lot of reason to be prideful. You, you caught all that language about you dwell in the clefts of rocks and you are among the stars and you are up there with the eagles. Um, the, what Edom had going for it really was it had a really good piece of land. Where they lived was like a really sweet piece of geography, of real estate, okay? Um, It was south and east of the Jordan River, okay? The Jordan River Basin is really low, okay? And then there's this high plateau that's kind of mountainous, and there's a lot of uh, canyons and stuff running through it. And the Edomites lived in this kind of high plateau, and they carved their dwellings and their buildings straight into the face of the rock, okay? And so uh, they thought they were pretty, pretty tough stuff. In fact, you might not think that you care about any of this stuff. You might think, I don't know what Edom looks like. I will never know what Edom looks like, and I don't care what Edom looks like. But you would be wrong, some of you. How many of you in this room have ever seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? It's the one with Sean Connery, Junior. Junior, you know, all the time calling him, and don't call me Junior, you know, that, that one, okay? Well, at the very end of that movie, as they're searching for the Holy Grail, okay, they go to this hidden temple, this hidden city, and they go inside, and there's the Holy Grail. They shot this, uh, that, that, last, that last little bit, in an actual city called Petra. Petra means rock in ancient Greek. They were carved in the rocks. It was the capital city of Edom. That's probably what you've, uh, that's, that's the actual building used from Indiana Jones and the, what was the, which one is it? The Last Crusade, there we go. Um, and so you can tell by scale, this is huge, the little tiny people in front. Those doors are massive. It's just impressive that they carved this out of the rock, okay? Um, here's a picture of the actual dwellings. You see all the little holes in the rock and these would have been streets and there would have uh, been stairs everywhere. It's very weathered over thousands of years of, of disuse and, and weather. Um, but um, you can see just a couple. This is a really a much nicer preserved area. But they actually dwelled in the clefts of rocks. Like they lived in the side of these, these canyons and, and this uh, up and down piece of real estate. Um, here's one just for scale. Um, you can kind of see how the doorways are behind them and how they're just kind of carved in there. Um, this is the background for the sermon image, but this kind of gives you what, it, what it's like. It's not exactly mountains. It's not exactly a plateau. It's actually a little bit of both. There's these deep canyons. And what made them feel so good about this um, was because the only way into these, this plateau, the only way into their dwelling places was through these tiny, narrow canyons. 
And again, you can see the people. So, I mean, it's a pretty big opening, right? But imagine this. If you're sitting there thinking, is an army going to come and get us? Are we safe from another army? That's a pretty good front door to have. Because you've got to fit thousands of soldiers into this tiny little thing. And all they would have to do, the Edomites, would just have to wait at the other end of this little canyon hallway and just slice them off as they come out single file almost. Okay, And so this was like a super secure place to try to get in and out of. It was, I mean, there was no way they thought anybody's ever going to get us. And they were so proud about it. They thought they could get away with anything, literally murder. We can take advantage of our brother nation, and nobody's going to touch us. You can't touch us. We are absolutely impervious. And here's the thing about pride, is that pride often starts in a place in your life where you've got something going for you. you got good looks. You've got, you know, that face that for some reason wrinkles don't seem to stick and you look about 10 years younger than everybody else. You've got a metabolism that no matter how many cupcakes you feed in, it just burns them right off, and weight never seems to stick to you. And you wear smaller pants than you did in high school, and everybody looks at you and they go, oh, I hate them. And, and, or maybe you've, you, you, you're more athletic than other people. You've got a little nicer of a build, and you're, you're stronger. Or maybe you're smarter than some of the people around you. For some reason, God has just blessed you with a little extra horsepower up here, and you can just kind of see things before other people see them and you can figure the other things out before other people figure them out. Um, whatever it might be, pride can often start in this area where we've got a blessing, where we've got something going for us. We've got a talent or a gift and it makes us start to think, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty, I'm pretty great here. And so they had this place where they were really secure and secure led them to think we're indestructible. We're impervious. Pride started to deceive them and twist their thinking so that secure meant indestructible. And it led them to make some really, really terrible, terrible decisions. Um, we're going to do this a little out of order. We're going to jump down to Obadiah, verse 10. And God says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, Aloof, and on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Notice he's saying, your brother nation was defeated by foreigners, and you had to you, you could pick which side you could be on, and you chose to be like a, a stranger rather than a brother. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand them over to his survivors in the day of distress. So they went into the city. They hurt and looted just like everybody else did. But that last line right there, that's the one that bothers me. The people of Edom, they got outside the cities. And as uh, Israel's getting destroyed, a few people got out. And they made it out alive. And waiting for them outside the cities were the people of Edom who were supposed to be their brothers. And they either captured them and turned them over to be imprisoned or killed, or they killed them themselves. I mean, they betrayed them. It was the, the most deep level 
of brotherly betrayal that you could possibly imagine. Their pride had started to make them think that they were better than their brother nation, that they could destroy their brother nation and nothing would happen to them. And that's kind of what pride does. Anytime you let pride make you think that you are better than you are, anytime you let pride deceive you into thinking that you're something that you're not, you will think that you are at a better level than other people around you. And that will lead you to mistreat them, That will lead you to hurt them, to disregard them. This can happen on a bunch of different levels. On the small scale, pride will lead you to just commandeer every conversation you're a part of. Okay? Seems harmless, right? It's just a conversation. And someone will say, they'll be talking about this thing they were working on, and they'll say something like, well, doggone it, I just could not get that thing to work. And you'll say, speaking of a dog, have you seen pictures of my dog? And you get out your phone, and you start showing pictures of your new poodle, or whatever it is, and you, you just hijack the conversation. And here's the thing, nobody cares about your dog. They didn't come and show up to talk about your dog. You just stole the conversation and made it all about you. And you'll sit there, and anytime people are talking, you're just sitting there. You're not dancing physically, but your mind is, because you're just waiting for that moment when you can jump in and say the thing that you want to say. Because conversation Conversations aren't about this two-way interaction. It's about you inflicting your thoughts on everybody else. And the problem with pride is, and this is what makes it dangerous, is you don't think it's malicious because you don't even think that it's bad to do that. You don't even notice that you do it most of the time. And that's, that's, that's small-scale pride. It doesn't lead you to hurt anybody. Nobody's life is at stake. But then it gets a little bit bigger where you're even, not even thinking about everybody else, but now you're just trying to convince everybody else that how, of how much better you are. Um, I've talked about this before, but you've heard of the humble brag, okay, where somebody says something that just sounds uh, like, like a complaint about themselves, but really they're just kind of bragging in this like, sad way, like, oh, it is just hard to find jeans this skinny. Oh, isn't that terrible? And you're like, I just want to kick you in the gut when you say things like that, or, you know, it's really hard being good at things because people expect so much from you. Oh, it's just awful. And you're like, oh, God. I mean, people who say things like that, that, that humble brag is, is this, I don't know if that term has been around for a long time, but I've heard, uh, I heard about it recently, and, and I think back, and it's like, I knew people like that. I've had, I've had guys t- come up to me like, oh, it's so awkward when girls just want to keep touching my bicep, you know, or something. And it's like, what? Who, who are you? You, don't, no, you love that, man. You are all over that. But it's this, I, but there's an acknowledgement there in the humble brag that pride is in play. That's where it gets a little bit bigger. You're still disregarding other people. You're still trying to build yourself up. But when you're humble bragging, you're at least trying to cover the pride that you know is at play and the pride you are allowing. Where pride gets really, really nasty is it's when you convince yourself that you are better than others. And this can play out in a million different ways in our lives. Um, It's where you start to ignore the needs of the people around you. Um, This is how two spouses can both come home from work equally exhausted, and one makes dinner while one sits in front of the couch, or in front of the TV on the couch. And gentlemen, we're usually the ones on the couch. And we think things like, well, I worked hard today. And let me just say this, if you have a wife who stays at home with the kids, and she asks for your help, with something, don't say, well, I worked all day and all you did, you were just here playing with the kids. If you get smacked to the floor, don't come whining to your preacher that your wife took you out, okay? 
um, the, Abby and I, for the last number of years, we've alternated days through the week, and I'll be home with the kids a little bit, she'll be home with the kids, and I'll say, boy, my day off's tomorrow, and I mean I'm coming to church that day. My day off is my day here. Day on is at home. The day that wears me out and makes me sleep good at night, that's with the kids, okay? Day off is the quietness of my office where I can sit with my thoughts, all right? So there, there's this thing, though, that even in that moment, we know, like, husbands, we know our wives work hard. We know being with the kids is, is exhausting, but we still think, I worked hard. I did things, and it makes us think that we are better, we deserve things that they are not entitled to. And so that's one, there's just a million different ways that this can all play out. This pride, that's why it's so sneaky. It, it, it can even mask itself as virtues. Um, you know, you serve at church, but you don't serve to be a servant. You serve so that people will see you serve. So you can say, look how good of a Jesus follower I am. Pride can do that to you, and it's so, so insidious that way. But at its ugliest, pride will lead you to actually wish for the downfall of those around you. And these are the thoughts that maybe you don't voice, but the smirk you get when you hear that your neighbor with that little bit too nice of a car gets a scratch on it. You go, hmm, 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 oh, Mr. Fancy Car, oh, got a scratch or ran over something, blew his tire. <laughs> you know, that's that pride that starts to wish for the downfall of others. And it went to the extreme here with Edom because they wanted to destroy their brother nation. You see, Israel had always been that nation of the blessing that God had been working through, and Edom was not that. They were still a nation. God was still with them like he is with all people, but not the same as Israel. And they decided they would destroy the brother. They decided they had the power and the allies and everything else to go destroy those who they should have been supporting. And then we jump back up to verse 6. Excuse me. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. See, they thought they were awesome but their pride deceived them. The allies that they met with, made with the, the Babylonians and these other nations that were bigger and stronger, those nations were going to be the ones that wiped them out. They were uh, playing things both ways, and so they thought they were impervious, but they were getting played as well. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and the understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. And Edom essentially essentially disappears. Edom is gone. These ruins that we find cut into the carvings of the rock are all we know now of Edom. They have been gone for thousands and thousands of years, destroyed. And God basically says, I'm going to take everything from you. You build yourself up, I'm going to be the one to knock you down. You think no one here can touch you? Don't forget, I am the Lord of heaven and earth, and I am higher than you could ever reach, and I can still smack you down no matter how big and bad you think that you are. And there are several places in this story where God just keeps saying, you build yourself up, I take you down. Now, I do want to say, though, that there's never a place in this story where God says that he hopes his people will build themselves up so that he gets the chance to knock them down. Um, sometimes you've got a, a rough boss and you daydream about the day that you just get to tell him off and storm out the door 
And you might not have a job after that, but it'll be worth it, is what you think, right? Um, God doesn't have that same desire to tell people off. He doesn't want to see us fall. He doesn't want to see us destroyed. God's hope is that we would humble ourselves, is that we would all be people kind of always on the watch for the, the, the sneaky, insidious, almost camouflaged sin of pride working in our lives, that we would always be on the lookout for it because he doesn't want to have to humble us down the way he humbled Edom. He wants us to be humble. And so he kind of gives us that choice. There, are, there is verse after verse and passage after passage in the pages of the Old Testament and the New where God is pleading with us to be humble. He's pleading with us to, be, to humble ourselves before him, to follow his commands. They are the better way to live. And yet the chief sin of humanity from Adam and Eve biting that fruit has been pride. And it will get every single one of us and it will destroy every single one of us. And not a single one of us is invincible or immune to it. And so we have got to fight pride. It is a road that you do not want to walk down. It will destroy you. And so you have to search your heart. You have to actively search your heart. Because finding pride out, being humble, that is a harder road to take. Because when you, you have to ask yourself incredibly hard questions like, why am I doing the things I'm doing? Again, you know, I serve in church. Why do I serve? Is it so that I can really be a blessing and, and a functioning part of God's body here in Loami? Or is it because I like people saying good job to me? Um, when I give advice to friends, why am I doing that? Is it so that I can be like, yeah, I'm kind, of the, I'm kind of the advice giver to my friends. I'm kind of the rock that people go to when their lives fall down. Or is it because you just want to help your friends avoid pain and suffering? You see, you can do one thing, and it looks so good, but pride can be in there. And so the, the road to finding humility is a road where you dig deep, and you are willing to look at the uglier parts of your soul. But the road of pride, I'll be honest, at first it's a really easy road to take because it is fun. It is fun for people to think you're the hero. It is fun for people to tell you how awesome you are. It is fun to think that you're better than other people. It is fun to gossip about, did you hear what they did? <laughs> I'm so much better than them. Can't you tell by my tone in the story I'm telling about how awful they are? <laughs> it's so much more fun to be prideful. But humbling yourself before God is a life that is much, much more in line with the direction God wants to take you. If you want more information on pride, I would advise you to read the book of Proverbs and just pay attention to every time it talks about prideful people and see how it works out for them. Spoiler alert, not well. So just assume this stuff is for you. Yeah, I know your sister needs to hear it. Yeah, I know your boss, you wish they were here. But assume that pride in this topic, it's for you, because it's actually for all of us. Assume that you need to become more humble, because guess what? You probably couldn't stand to be a little bit more humble. The alternative is not pretty. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful for these difficult messages, of these difficult challenges toward humility, um, it is difficult to look into our heart, to look into our lives and, and admit the gross stuff that's in there. Yeah, we might be people who are serving and, and giving, but yet when we kind of peel back the layers of why, it's not pretty. 
We do it for ourselves. We do it for the praise. We do it for the story. We do it so people will look at us and think, wow, I, I wish I could have faith like them. I wish I could have talents like them. Father, let us question our motives. Let us never just do something on the, so that looks good on the surface without first questioning what our heart is doing underneath because pride will surely lead us farther and farther away from you. And I, I pray that we would heed this powerful example in the book of Obadiah of how the people of Edom let pride deceive them and it, lead them to, it led them to do despicable things. And I pray that we would see that the fact that you totally wiped them out for their sin, that shows how much you despise pride and how much you desire your people to work it out of our lives. And so, Father, we thank you that in the meantime, you have still given us Jesus, that though we are not perfect, that though we are all on some level prideful and we all think too much of ourselves at times, I, I thank you for your Son who saves us who rescues us from our sin. And I thank you that you give us the chance and the time and the Holy Spirit to, to work out our salvation even though we already possess it. And so, Father, help us to be humble. Help us to avoid the consequences of pride because it's so dangerous. It'll destroy our marriages. It'll destroy our relationships with our kids. It'll make us the worst possible coworkers. It'll make us impossible people to be around at dinner parties and Christmas gatherings. But when we're humble, we can do more for you than we ever thought possible. We can serve in places and help people in ways that we can never even imagine. We think pride is powerful. No, but the, re the real power is in humility. The real, the real progress in life comes when we humble ourselves and serve you with a genuine heart to help. Thank you for the example of humility in Jesus that though he didn't deserve the cross, he went to it for our behalf. He came to serve, not be served. May we follow in his footsteps. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.